Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. Our podcasts regularly feature senior leaders across branches of the military, and today's guest continues that theme. We are joined by Captain Sheldon Gillis of the Royal Canadian Navy. Captain Gillis is currently serving as a Deputy Fleet Commander of Maritime Forces Atlantic, which is otherwise known as Canadian Fleet Atlantic. Captain Gillis recently served as the Naval Task Group Commander for Operation Nanook 2022, where he led a multinational flotilla which was focused on northern and Arctic operations. Our discussion focuses on that deployment and on the new Arctic and offshore patrol vessels which are entering service with the Canadian Navy. We discuss ways the ships are being employed and the potential for future enhancements. We also discuss the High North and the Arctic as an important region to Canada and as an area that is of growing interest to adversaries like Russia and even China. So important is the Arctic that NATO's new strategic concept identifies Russia's capabilities in the High North as a strategic challenge for the whole alliance. It's an incredibly important region as you'll hear, so we hope you enjoy this discussion. Let's get at it. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Tariwala and I'm your host. And today I'm joined by Navy Captain Sheldon Gillis, who is the Deputy Fleet Commander of Maritime Forces Atlantic. I think I have that correct. That's right. Canadian Fleet Atlantic. Canadian Fleet Atlantic. Thank you so much, uh, Captain. It's uh, it's sometimes hard to make sure that I've got all the right acronyms and the right, <laughs> the right the right abbreviations uh, proper. But uh, it's it's wonderful to have you here. I've had the opportunity to speak with you before, so I've been looking forward to this uh, to this chat. Um, uh, you're you're a lot of fun to chat with, so I'm I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, it was great. And I really appreciate you having me on uh, the podcast. I spent uh, the last little while since our last chat uh, catching up and and watching uh, some of your previous guests and getting some tips and pointers for today. So I hope uh, hope it goes smooth. (laughs) I'll I'll take it easy on you, I promise. (laughs) Well, as I do with all of my guests, I start by asking what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did? So I am a blue noser by background. So I am from Nova Scotia, um, grew up, but born and raised here. Um, and so for me, the hook was really sunk, uh, as they say, on the water at a young age. Um, my, my family were, uh, were mariners in the local fisheries in Nova Scotia. And uh, for me, coming to the, uh, the big harbor, we call it here, Halifax, uh, seeing the ships, the warships in the harbor at a young age, it's always something that intrigued me. And I knew before I even went to university that I wanted to join the Navy. Wasn't sure what quite trade I wanted to get into yet, but I just knew that I wanted to be on the great things here behind me. And um, it's been uh, it's been a fantastic journey so far throughout my 24 years. Yeah, that's awesome. And what specific trade did you follow, uh, Captain Gills? So I joined what uh, used to be called the Maritime Surface and Subsurface Officer, now called Naval Warfare Officer. Okay. Uh, so on, uh, on our ships in the Navy, we have three types of officers. We have uh, logistics officers. We have our uh, marine systems. Uh, we have our engineers, which are broken into two branches, marine systems and combat systems. Then we have the operators. Um, and the operators, uh, naval warfare officers, that's the path to command uh, of a warship. And so 
I always knew that there'd be challenges. Uh, didn't know whether it would all, uh, be achievable or not, but I knew I aspired to something in leadership. And uh, Naval Warfare Officer offered, offered the opportunity to command warships and uh, to lead people. And uh, to me, that was, it was the right choice. And I have no regrets uh, about the choices made. Right on. Uh, so some of the pathways to becoming a leader in the Canadian Armed Forces, some people go to uh, the military colleges, other people go through university, and uh, some people just join outright. Uh, what was your path? Um, and I'd love to hear some of the highlights of your career uh, prior to your current position as Deputy Fleet Commander. So um, there, there's a number of different paths. I guess what I'd start by saying is everyone in the Armed Forces is a leader in some capacity or another. Of it doesn't matter whether you're wearing stripes or chevrons. Uh, we're all uh, we're all the leaders. But the opportunity to command uh, really is is the thing that 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 penultimate leadership and a platform at sea to make decisions. That's that's really what sucked, sunk the hook uh, for me. Um, and so you can join, as you said, a number of different ways as an officer. You can join, um, you know, direct out of high school. Uh, you can join direct entry at a university. You can go to the military colleges. There's a, there's a number of different ways and, and options that are open. I chose uh, to go to a civilian university um, and uh, took my Bachelor of Business Administration. It's something my parents really wanted for me. They wanted me to go to a civilian school. Nothing against military colleges. It's just... I was the first member of my family to join the military since uh, relatives in World War II. And so um, my parents really saw that that education, just in case it didn't work out uh, outside the military uh, as an option for me, and it worked for me. Not to say that military college wouldn't have, maybe it would have worked out, but uh, just as happy. Um, finished my university civilian education, and I joined almost immediately on completion of uh, that final uh, semester in university. And, uh, I joined, I went to the um, basic training in uh, Quebec, got that uh, miserable army stuff out of the way early on in my career. <laughs> <laughs> it's just living in a tent was not for me. Right. Uh, so much more to it. I'm just, uh, just poking. Um, but uh, then I joined uh, the Navy. I got really got my first taste of the Navy in British Columbia. And I went out and started my training uh, in 1999 out in Victoria and just a beautiful place, a beautiful part of the country, a phenomenal experience. Um, my wife, uh, soon to be wife at the time was here finishing her education degree. And so uh, the lure to come back to Nova Scotia, um, to come back to, uh, to her and, and to, to the Navy here was strong. So after finishing my training at British Columbia, I did join my first operational unit, which was HMCS Iroquois, um, and an extremely busy program. Uh, I joined a, an operational platform. Um, that was going to see a lot. And as I say to young officers when they join the Navy, those years are foundational. And uh, it's like building the foundation of a house when you join a, a ship for the first number of years. It's do you build a foundation that's in, uh, in sand or do you build it in concrete? And, uh, you know, with that foundation actually set. And the thing that sets experience in the future is sea time. So going to sea. So I was really fortunate with that first posting that I I got experience to a wide variety of leaders and mentors, um, and, um, and I had the opportunity to deploy. Now, unfortunately, the deployment was as a result of the 9-11 attacks, and I spent you know, those early years uh, in the Navy, in the Persian Gulf with American, American task groups uh, conducting counterterrorism operations. 
Wow. You know, so first I have to say I have a sweet spot in my heart for the 280 class. I spent, yeah. a lo- I spent a lot of time on HMCS Algonquin. And yeah, I love those destroyers. They were amazing ships. And uh, it'll be nice to see once that capability comes back to the Royal Canadian Navy uh, in the Canadian surface combatant. But uh, absolutely seeing that come back, that area air defense capability, um, you know, and, and having uh, missiles the size of telephone poles coming out of the front end of the ship was always impressive. In fact, that's what hooked me for the next phase of my career where I then uh, moved on to become an above water warfare officer. So missile and gunnery officer on a destroyer as well. Cool. Uh, so uh, I really enjoyed those years. I mean, I've just come off a number of months in the Arctic with uh, the brand new Arctic offshore patrol ship behind me and uh, such uh, great design features built into the new ships for comfort for the crew in mind, personal privacy in space, uh, communication with uh, personal cellular devices, just things I didn't have when I first joined the Navy. When I first joined the Navy, I mean, I can remember when we deployed in 9-11, you know, getting my first correspondence from home was an email from my wife that, you know, goes to a central repository. Somebody prints it out, puts it in a, in a physical inbox. Uh, uh, and so totally different forms of communication, you know, with the big mailbags coming. And now the communication is instantaneous uh, with home. So, you know, to go back to your original point, it's been a, a big span over, you know, 24 years, the change in the Navy has just been incredible. Just that one small example of, you know, communications, personal communications and connectivity um, has changed the Navy. Um, and so um, very quickly then to move on, you know, I, I specialized in above water warfare. Um, I went ashore, I instructed above water warfare and electronic warfare. Um, I uh, went back to sea on destroyers again as a combat operations officer and a combat officer um, and then uh, was part of our sea training group, which is like internal affairs for the Navy, yeah, the experts in training at sea. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years. And then I got my first taste of Ottawa. I went uh, into the Directorate of Maritime Requirements, C, it was okay. called, Naval Requirements. Um, so I was responsible for electronic warfare projects for the Navy. Um, so I did that for a year, went to the Joint Command Staff Program in Toronto, did my master's degree there. And then was posted as the executive officer of HMCS Toronto here on the East Coast, deployed uh, with Op Reassurance Road 2 into the Black Sea uh, and Mediterranean. Spent a year ashore in the uh, command headquarters here, when then was uh, provided the privilege of going back to sea to command a frigate, uh, St. John's. Went to the Eastern Mediterranean uh, Operations Office Syria at the war in Syria, and then uh, Took probably the hardest challenge of my career, uh, an Anglophone East Coaster, um, and I had to do the year-long French course, right. uh, which was an incredible opportunity to be provided the, the privilege to learn another language. Mind you, at uh, you know early 40s, that was quite challenging uh, for, for sure. me, For sure. but got through it, and then I went to Ottawa again, uh, responsible for all Navy projects as the Director of Maritime uh, Requirements uh, again, everything from underwear to missile systems and everything in between uh, was kind of what, what we were responsible for. And now back as a deputy fleet commander with sailors. So I'm quite happy. So yeah, that, that time in Ottawa, boy, um, there, there was a lot there. You certainly strike me as an operator as opposed to an administrator. Um, but I guess administration is part of, uh, you know, every job as you, as you kind of uh, rise in the ranks. Um, but how did you like your time in Ottawa? 
you're in a very structured environment in, in that context, you know, just like you are in, in Halifax, but the military is a structured environment. But, um, you know, you have your tasks and your roles and, and you develop your leadership skills as you go. How have you found your leadership skills evolve over time from early on in your career to where you are today? Um, do you have any folks that you kind of look to as, as examples? Uh, there's so many people that play a role in shaping kind of who we become. And, you know, I, I had a great conversation with an officer here in the, uh, in the office today, talking about exactly this, about how a person transitions and changes over time, you know, and who you are when you first enroll and the knowledge that you have, you are a collection of your experiences, I guess is what I would say. And so, you know, the military, you know, the, the, the influence of the military on me started, you know, in my early twenties and I had, 20 years of life before that, you know, that I, that I brought in a way of living and going to civilian school and university, and then to come into a very structured organization, like you're talking about, you know, it, it's shock a little bit, I guess I would say at the start. Sure. But it is those mentors. And so, you know, what I tell people is the experience isn't always perfect. Um, you learn from the good that you work with and you learn from the bad. Hmm. Uh, you and you have to take those things and you know apply the good to your toolbox and commit yourself to not putting the bad things in your leadership toolbox and so um it changes over time and so i you know i was exceptionally like my first captain um, recently passed navy captain retired david sweeney he was probably one of the largest influences on me throughout my career um just a very positive mentor and i would say he was ahead of his time um, as a leader at that time, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, when the military started, I would say to transition, um, and, and started to, to grow. I mean, that growth is continuing. We're in the middle of a, uh, of an absolutely necessary culture change again. Um, but I believe we're getting better. It's not perfect and it's, there's work to be done, but we need good people staying, as the chief has said, you know, to, to commit to making it a better institution day by day. And there's lots of great leaders, um, you know. And so I tell people that join in the Navy, officers that join in the Navy, young Naval Warfare officers in particular, that, you know, there's two halves really to our career that you have to be prepared for. The first half is the, the great things with propellers behind me turning. That's fun going out, doing things around the world. Mm-hmm. The path at the end is leading you to institutional leadership. It's leading you to running the company at the end. That's where it, that's where it could go. And so we need to make sure that we intersperse our careers with the right level of experience over time so that a person, when they arrive in Ottawa, are not bankrupt of the knowledge that they need to actually do something that's completely foreign to uh, operations at sea. Operations at sea give you credibility when you're speaking about the requirements or the needs for things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a whole other machine that's required, the, the defense bureaucracy machine, uh, bureaucratic machine, to spit something out the other end of that. That is a whole other language. You know, you mentioned at the start of the discussion today about language and about acronyms. Ottawa is a whole other game uh, and a thing that you need to be exposed to early in your career. So, that, like I said, when you arrive there, you're ready uh, for those institutional level challenges. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love that approach. I think it, you're absolutely right. Take the good, incorporate it into your toolbox and, uh, and chuck the bad for sure. Um, and I'm sorry to hear of the passing of your, your first uh, uh, commanding yeah. officer. Um, uh, but we, we honor and acknowledge his memory for sure and his service. Um, 
so yeah, you know, here you are as deputy fleet commander uh, in Halifax. Uh, tell me what that job's like. Um, it is incredibly challenging and rewarding, I would say. Uh, you know, I form part of the fleet command team uh, led by Commodore Trevor McLean, the fleet commander. As his deputy, I'm his, uh, his backup, I'm his sober second thought, and I help uh, provide advice and guidance to the fleet, uh, to the fleet ships captains, executive officers, work with the uh, third member of the command team, of course, the essential uh, part, uh, the fleet chief, uh, Chief Petty Officer uh, Kavel Shabib. And between the three of us, we really were here to help and assist the fleet achieve the missions that we're assigning. And the Navy, as you know, uh, is exceptionally busy right now. We are, uh, we are all over the world. It is a busy, dangerous time in the world right now, and uh, the Navy is needed uh, to be out the door. And it's not without its challenges, of course. You know, we have a frigate fleet that's at its midlife, uh, beyond its midlife. Um, I was very fortunate. I commanded a uh, newly modernized uh, Halifax-class frigate on deployed operations. But as time is marching on, the, the maintenance challenges grow. Um, and so seeing the Canadian surface combatant on the horizon for us, it couldn't come at a better time uh, to ensure that the Navy remains ready to deliver when Canadians need us to deliver. So that is the first part of the challenge is getting the ships out the door, getting the people trained and getting them ready. Um, you know, the, the commander of the Navy and others have talked about, the chief has talked quite clearly about the crisis of people mm -hmm. uh, that we're facing right now. Uh, and so knowing that you're needed around the world, that your ships and your people, what we call the blood and treasure, the people and the ships uh, are needed around the world. That is a real challenge for us. And it's something that's, you know, consistent juggling, um, you know, at a time where we need to feed and, and nourish a culture change in our fleet and how we interact with each other. All these things, I, I guess I'd say, keep us really busy and keep us hopping. Yeah, and it's got to be a challenge because, you know, as the commander of the Navy has said, said there's a crisis in personnel. So that's got to be difficult, not only for you to have ships go out the door on operations, but, you know, force generation. And on top of that, you're getting some new ships in the fleet. They're not the Canadian surface combatant yet, but the Arctic offshore patrol ships are coming online uh, and a wonderful capability from everything that I know about them. Um, but it requires more people. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I guess I would say that we're, we're effectively managing that right now. Um, you know, it is a stressor on the ship's companies for sure. Um, we recognize that and acknowledge that, it, you know, I'm not to make it sound like it's easy. Um, but, you know, we do we have ships out the door with NATO right now. We have two frigates uh, in the Indo-Asia Pacific, uh, Vancouver and Winnipeg operating. Uh, we have two uh, East Coast frigates preparing for operations here early in the new year. Uh, Arctic offshore patrol vessels, that's a part of my daily job, is the introduction to service of the Arctic offshore patrol ships. Um, so we have Harry DeWolf and Margaret Brooke up and running on ops. We have Max Bernays uh, recently joined the fleet, soon to go to the West Coast in 2023 to join her new home port in British Columbia. Uh, William Hall is on the slipway. She's outside uh, at Irving. Uh, and you're right, all these things come with a human resource bill. Um, fortunately, the new ships, you know, these, uh, these ships are, you know, crewed with a crew of 60 to 70 uh, compared to the 250, uh, 230, 250 for a frigate, which, you know, is helping. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's still not challenges. I mean, this is an entirely new uh, platform. Uh, it's area of operations, the Canadian Arctic, the third ocean, which is now opening, is, requires new skill sets, new training. Um, you know, to prep those sailors for that zone of operation. And so 
uh, certainly, uh, as I use, like to use the analogy of a juggler, the balls are all being uh, juggled in the air right now. None of them are rolling away from us right now, but it is certainly uh, a complex endeavor. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's a great segue to talk about the Arctic offshore patrol ships, uh, the patrol vessels, and what they bring to the Royal Canadian Navy. Um, you have just participated in Operation Nanook, um, but Operation Nanook has a number of iterations throughout the year. Um, so I would love to get your insight about taking the AOPS north, but it was not just the AOPS that was participating. You had, uh, you had uh, international participants as well. We did. And so this year's iteration of Operation Nanook involved a number of international partners in, in various forms. So we had actual hulls from other countries come, from France, uh, from Denmark, uh, from the United States. We also had staff officers join us from Belgium, South Korea, Japan. Um, and so we had, and we had the U.S. Navy on board, some medical teams from the U.S. Navy uh, doing some advanced medicine. Um, very impressed with the medical facility on these Arctic offshore patrol ships. Um, you know, there's a number of phases to the operation. So the first phase saw us operating in the Davis Strait area with the international partners, um, conducting everything from warfare, information exchange, discussions, tabletops, um, you know, search and rescues at sea, uh, dark fishing fleet uh, tracking and interdiction and those kind of activities. Uh, once that phase was complete, we pushed further north. The Canadian ships did uh, into Lancaster Sound, into Pond Inlet area, uh, Resolute Bay. Uh, and we pushed the bounds in a couple areas there with uh, science, uh, first and foremost, doing some work and monitoring the water column. Um, very important to understand what's happening with the changes in the water condition in the north with the melting ice for things like anti-submarine warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, important to know the speed of sound in the water and how that's changing uh, with that uh, changing in salinity. Uh, so we did some work there. Um, we also did some concept development with the Arctic Offshore Patrol vessel providing fuel and support to a Kingston class, something we hadn't done before at sea at anchors. So kind of opened some doors for us for uh, future employment of that platform around the world as a, uh, as a host ship for other small ships. Um, and then uh, we did our first refueling at sea um, uh, with a ship at anchor, a civilian vessel at anchor in the north. Um, so community resupply is done by civilian companies up there. So we proved the concept, the ability to operate with civilian oilers if required while we're waiting for Nana Civic fueling facility to be opened. Um, and then the ship tested its metal uh, literally in ice, uh, proceeded well north of Resolute Bay up to the polar ice cap. Uh, up to almost 79 degrees north. And uh, it was great to see that Margaret Brook really pushing the bounds and doing that. Um, and then proceeded southbound into Cambridge Bay. And we did some community engagement kind of uh, along the way there as well, which is an important aspect. Um, but a great trip. And really, every trip we're making up there with these ships and any ship is opening doors and we're learning every time uh, we're operating up there. Right on. And it was originally planned where there would be two AOPS operating together, but unfortunately that didn't transpire uh, this time around. Yeah. So unfortunately we had, we did have some mechanical issues with Harry DeWolf. Um, as you know, Harry DeWolf had a very successful circumnavigation of North America last year, um, went up to the North, uh, operated and really Harry DeWolf really broke some bounds uh, and, and really opened the eyes of operational planners uh, inside the Navy of what this ship can do. I mean, we operated in the, in the Arctic for the entire summer, transited from Greenland to Dutch Harbor on one tank of fuel. 
and, and did all our operations in the north. Just an incredible capacity. And then the ship proceeded all the way around at uh, British Columbia through the Panama Canal and home. And so got some great service so far at Harry Wolf, but we did have some engine issues. And so part of, you know, risk mitigation and decisions as the task group commander that you have to make is, you know, uh, we always want to make sure that we are weighing and measuring risk and, and, and judging whether the risk is worth the, uh, the reward. And when you're talking risk on a ship at sea in a um, remote environment like the North and the impact that could have on crews, uh, you always have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And so when we looked at it in this case and knowing that Harry DeWolf has a follow-on program uh, that's very important to us as well in the Caribbean, we decided to turn the ship around, bring it back home and get repairs done on those diesel engines. Uh, having the four motor diesel driven engines in the north is so important in the ability to, uh, to navigate in ice and to, to bull and push your way through the ice. I saw it firsthand with Murger Brook with four engines running and you know running at uh, really good capacity, high capacity on those engines. So to me, it was clear that, you know, certainly we could have had Harry Wolf continue up into Lancaster Sound and operate in the areas that were free of ice, but is the risk worth the reward, the long-term reward of the program? And so we decided to bring her home and, and we're glad we did. We, we have her in maintenance here now behind me and that maintenance is remaining underway. And we had actually a big maintenance window already blocked for that ship for this fall. And so we're taking the opportunity to get other repairs done while she's in here as well. Yeah, I, I think it, that's a very, very fair uh, course of action. I think it makes sense. Um, part of, I guess, exercising this whole capability of operating in the north is realizing um, the complexities of operating in the north and being able to support the ships. And so obviously, you know, you determined that, hey, it's better to come back to Halifax as opposed to proceeding north and uh, potentially getting into a, a situation where, you know, it's much harder to support the ships. That to me is a win, actually. Yeah, I mean, we have in place a really good um, relationship. So the, the difference with the with the new ships is the way that we conduct maintenance on them. And so we have an in-service support contractor, Talos Canada, that's responsible for uh, the majority of the maintenance on the platform. Um, and so these are some things that we want to, uh, we want to push the balance. And as I said, in the North with logistics challenges, mm -hmm. we want to prove that as a Navy and as a contractor that we can operate and we can do repairs in the North. Um, it's just when, when you look at the complexity of moving large parts into, uh, into communities, and I'm not sure if you had seen this summer in the North, um, with the, some of the fuel supply shortages and uh, and some of the airports going down to restricted flights going in and reduced capacity flights, it makes the movement in and out difficult. Now, of course, the military beauty of the military is we do have our own uh, we have our own means of heavy moving and heavy lifting things. Sure. And of course, you can use those things. But if you look at the Air Force, and I know you've talked to a number of my colleagues in the Air Force, they too are incredibly busy right now as well. They are stretched. Uh, supporting uh, the illegal, uh, you know, the war in, uh, in uh, Ukraine uh, and our bolstering our partners and our allies in NATO around the fringes of that, uh, that, uh, that war um, and all our operations in the Indo-Asia Pacific. So when we talk about maintenance, it really was better to do the maintenance here in Halifax. Um, and in the future, we could be looking, you know, in the future with Nanocivic opening, um, in doing and pushing the, the concept of operations there. Um, but in this case, it just made more sense for us to bring the ship back. 
Yeah. You know, I called it a win. Of course you want the ship to be deployed, but uh, you know, you don't want to go back and have to do maintenance and, and corrective uh, uh, procedures, but um, that's part of operating and trying to figure out how do you support these new vessels in the Royal Canadian Navy. So I think every opportunity to exercise the ship and the whole chain of operation and support is, it's a good thing. That's what you're there to do and, and to try and learn. Um, I love the fact that Margaret Brooke was up there and that you were testing the water column, that you were going into ice. So I'd love to kind of talk about the AOPS and the different capabilities that, that it brings to the Royal Canadian Navy. Yeah, I, I, you know, that's, that's a really important spot. I guess it's a great spot to start, you know, is the modularity piece, um, you know, and the importance of modularity. You know, as I said before, I came from a project background, my, my experiences in Ottawa and, and running major capital projects. And, you know, with a Navy compared to other elements, the hardest part for us is capability insertion after the hull is built. And so what I mean by that is, you know, trying to change a hull around a change in a missile system, like we did with the Iroquois class destroyers when we put in standard missile two, that is a significant change and that takes time. And when you have a, a fleet of 12 or 15 ships and you have two shipyards and you have operations ongoing, it takes a long time to get that capability inserted in platforms over time. And so one of the beauties of the new ships uh, with the CSC included is modularity. Um, between the, the, the new joint support ship, the Arctic offshore patrol vessels and the Canadian surface combatant, we're gonna have space for over 300 containers, shipping containers. Um, and that's a lot of space to put capability into. And so, you know, to get back to your question about the capabilities of the Arctic offshore patrol ship, the beauty of that ship is there's room to grow. Um, and the room to grow is built in with the necessary plugins and things that we need. So what I mean by that is the quarter deck, for example, on the, the back of the ship has a space for multiple containers. And you can put everything in there from a, from a towed array, autonomous underwater vehicles, uh, hospital equipment, things that need to go to the north to support the Nenecivic or other research that we want to do. Basically, the imagination is the limit. And so the beauty of that is you could take that container off and you could put it then on the joint support ship, or you could take that container off and put it in the mission bay of the Canadian surface combatant. And so I know the director of naval requirements is looking at exactly that. What do we want to put in these containers? And we're starting to move down some of these roads, but for the Arctic in particular, there is, there is a huge amount of work to just the space alone of the Arctic, uh, the challenge of geography up there. Um, you know, you mentioned about the, the, the loss of one AOPV. I mean, we had a number of federal partners up there with us, the Canadian Coast Guard, uh, but having hulls up there and covering ground, when you're talking, you know, uh, I, I can't remember what the exact number is, but somewhere around the vicinity of 5.2 million square kilometers to cover of territory. And so Canadians should really think of that in terms of if you have 12 ships or say you have six of these Arctic offshore patrol vessels, that's covering a territory the size of Canada. Like if they were to think about covering Canada with six police cars, right. that's the size of the territory we're talking about. And so having the tools and the sensors on board the ship to be able to, you know, not just rely on the ship sensors, but space-based sensors and, and sea bottom sensors and, and other things. That is the area where we are really uh, working with our Defence Research Development Canada and other partners to make sure that the ship is going to be enabled in the future with the tools to take full advantage and build a, a recognized maritime picture uh, of places where maybe the ship, uh, you know, 
can't have a consistent presence. So modularity in the ship, huge amount of space. And, uh, you know, as I said, I deployed as a task group commander with the staff this summer. Ship easily accommodated it. The extra uh, command and control systems required, the people required, um, and just there is an enormous growth space inside that ship. We're talking 2,000 tons heavier than a frigate right now uh, with a third of the crew. And so much bigger ship with lots of space and room to grow. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned the modularity. And I absolutely appreciate that the AOPS is not a surface combatant, was never meant to be, was not designed as such. Um, But having said that, you know, your analogy of like having uh, six police cars or akin to six police cars in that area, you know, I personally, and this is my view and my view alone, is that, you know, I think that every asset that the Navy has should have the most capability. Now, with that said, I I also recognize that there's cost implication, manpower, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, and complexity. Um, So, you know, when I think about the capability of the AOPS, it's got a lot, but from a weapons perspective, I think it's limited. And I would love to know your thoughts, and I'm not asking you to, you know, look into a crystal ball, but from the modular perspective of it, can you see the capabilities from a, from a weapons perspective being enhanced in the future? Um, you know, there's, who knows what the world's uh, geopolitical situation is going to say and do and, and how it's going to change sure. uh, what the requirements would be for the Canadian Arctic, but what I would say is we got exactly what we needed for the operations in Canada's north. And so it, it's a challenging space because Canada's internal waters, um, there, there's other federal government departments that have a mandate for the internal domestic security inside our waters. So between Canadian Border Services Agency, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Fisheries and Oceans, Canadian Coast Guard and others, they all also have a role to play here. What we're talking about is the external domestic avenues to get out the country where the Navy is really your warning line. It doesn't mean the Navy can't be used internally, but we do that normally through assistance to other government department requests when they come in and they need us, usually as a measure of last resort. Mm -hmm. But the airport, it's an operational zone because it's so far away from everything in the south of Canada. Um, you really need to be prepared for, you know, I think the question you're getting at is, are, should we be prepared for the full spectrum of warfare in the North? Yes. If you look at some of the, some of the Air Force activities that are underway, you know, with the future fighter uh, airport improvements and runways in the North and NORAD modernization, those things are taking care of, you know, the air approaches to the North. The maritime approaches, it's different, um, you know, when you, you're looking at different, a completely different set of capabilities that are required. You know, as I said before, the North is, you know, 5.2, I think it's somewhere, you know, I could be wrong, somewhere in the vicinity, like I said, 5.2 million square kilometers. There's 36,000 islands in the North, great hiding spots for shipping. And the shipping is growing. The shipping season is getting longer. There's adventurers, there's cruise ships, and we want to make sure that we know what people are doing while they're up there. And so it's not to say that they're up there to cause a war. But, uh, you know, we talked about it in our last uh, discussion about, you know, Russia's activities in the north and, and, and they're weaponizing at former bases that were closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, need to be ready. And, uh, and so what I would say is that the, the AOPV is our eyes and ears. With the season getting longer, navigable season getting longer, we certainly need to be ready for that. 
But what I guess I would say is I attended a great conference last week, uh, Arctic Security Conference here in Halifax, that was coordinated through the uh, Brian Mulroney Center at uh, St. Francis Xavier University. And uh, there was some great discussions about exactly this point, you know, should, should we be uparming these ships? And if you look at the challenges in the north, the geography and the ice and the weather provides a great barrier in itself. Um, the, the ice is unpredictable. You know, in my preparations for going north this year, I looked at uh, ice over the last 10 years and overlaid some of the routes that we were looking at taking and seeing whether we could do it year over year. And there wasn't a pattern where you could say, okay, you know, this, this 100% will be open or will be ice free and all the ships can go there. And so the ice, as you know, comes around uh, in the Beaufort Sea and comes up into the Canadian Arctic from the west and fills in the archipelago. And so that provides a barrier in itself. But the issue is that barrier is melting over time. And so Canadian surface combatant is our primo, it will be our primo warfighter, just like the, uh, the Halifax class. Mm-hmm. We also have our, our other elements that support maritime operations. So our maritime patrol aircraft, the CP-140, are fantastic with the block upgrades that they've got in uh, hunting and tracking submarines uh, and the ability to carry weapons necessary to deal with submarines. Um, you know, we have the uh, maritime aircraft, the Cyclone, a fantastic new addition to our fleet. Um, also capable of carrying weapons. And so I guess kind of the way that the Navy looks at the Arctic offshore patrol vessel, like I said before, it's the eyes and ears. Mm-hmm. And so what we're talking about capability improvements and block improvements that could be made in that ship is to the sensors capabilities, um, you know, and reaching out to greater assets in space, uh, putting that containers on the back of the ship for towed arrays, um, the ability to use the large cranes that are on the ship for bottom arrays to let us know when something's there. And then, of course, we also have our, our, our most important uh, strategic weapon, which is the Victoria-class submarines, which have operated in the north uh, before. Uh, Admiral Robinson, who I know you know uh, quite well from out in, uh, in MARPAC, uh, has a great picture in his office of the submarine with the icebergs in behind it. But, um, you know, the importance of submarines for us and, and the ability to operate in all three of the oceans, uh, recognizing the limitations of a diesel-electric submarine under ice, um, of course, the ability for the Arctic offshore patrol vessel to queue those other assets is really how we're using the platform. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic is a highly diversified company and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. Cubic's training solutions include SPEAR, the next generation of multi-domain training which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. You'll get a sense of why that is important as you listen to this episode. We're thankful that Cubic supports our efforts of sharing stories from senior warfighters and leaders from around the world. In doing so, we are preserving history through first-hand accounts. So we are proud to have Cubic as a teammate to go bold. To learn more about them and their amazing capabilities, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, back to our chat. You mentioned the containers earlier, and I can't help but think of some trials that the U.S. Navy has done where they had containerized standard missiles that they launched from what, they, what they're calling their ghost fleet, uh, unmanned uh, large surface vessels. Um, but 
where I'm going with it is that that capability is modular. It's in a container and it was employed in the U.S. Navy's case through this unmanned surface vessel, but something like that could potentially be operated from an AOPS if you, if you so desired. Or any platform uh, for that matter. Um, you know, you have the capability, you just need the right connectors and queuing systems to make sure that the weapon's going to go where you want it to go. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I said, there's no plans right now for the Arctic offshore patrol vessel for that. Really, what we're looking at is those, those sensors and the improvements to sensors on the ship. As you said, it's a non-combatant built to Lloyd Registry uh, standards. Um, and so we need it to be able to patrol the waters at the north, which include ice, which it's doing for us. Large space back aft with containers, which we're taking advantage of every summer or every navigable season that we get up there. And the other thing we didn't talk about is the other missions that that Arctic offshore patrol vessel has, you know, counter drug operations in the, uh, in the Caribbean, potential host ship for small vessels like NATO fleets and, and those kind of things for mine countermeasure, deploying, you know, remote autonomous vehicles in support of those kind of missions. There is a whole host of things that this, uh, as part of the offshore patrol vessel, not just the Arctic part of it, the offshore patrol vessel that this vessel can do for us. Yeah. Oh, absolutely fair comment. And, and, and so important because, you know, when I think about MCDVs going across the Atlantic to Africa, um, wow. Like, I mean, you know, I've been on board MCDVs and, uh, and I give those sailors all the credit in the world for going across the the Atlantic. Um, But it just speaks to the AOPS uh, ships, the size is probably more conducive to going across the Atlantic, but then you have the uh, capacity to do a lot more things. Absolutely. I mean, we are getting, we are squeezing every ounce of capability we can out of those Kingston class. Uh, we have two just completing uh, mine countermeasures operations with standing NATO, NATO maritime groups, mine countermeasures groups. Actually, they, they are doing exactly what you just said. They're earning their sea pay. <laughs> right. Really spicy weather in the Atlantic. Um, our backyard here uh, is host to some really uh, wild weather, as you know, and uh, they are on their way back to Canada in some challenging, not dangerous, challenging, you know, couple of meter seas, but on a small ship, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's tough. Um, they did some great work over there. We had our, our naval clearance divers on board, uh, disposing of live ordnance off the coast of France. Um, you know, World War II mines that were found in uh, shipping areas and shipping lanes that uh, Canadian divers, uh, Canadian ships with remote autonomous vehicles found uh, the mines and disposed of them. Um, and so they're doing real world operational activity and, and seeing the importance of that work and being able to, to, to contribute to that, that world, looking at the Russian uh, uh, deployment of mines in the Black Sea. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we have the skills necessary and our divers, which often get forgot about in, in uh, when you're talking about Navy and big Navy, an essential component to our capability to operate at sea and keep sea lines and sea lanes open. Um, those divers do fantastic work uh, every day at the fleet diving unit, Atlantic and Pacific as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. The, uh, the things that they're able to do is amazing, let alone just kind of support the ships themselves, you know, uh, and, and, um, and protection of the ships. Um, so you talked about the AOPS being, you know, that sensors are key and part and parcel of that is the, the cyclone helicopter, as you mentioned, I know that there's been testing done with the AOPS to facilitate the cyclone. Um, where do things stand in that regard? 
So that was uh, that's a space that we're working quite heavily on the director naval requirements and director air requirements staff. So working on this, uh, the challenge was you know if you look at the history of these two projects and programs, the Arctic Offshore Patrol vessel and the Cyclone selection and introduction to service, the two timelines really didn't match up. And so when AOPV was constructed and design was committed to, and then we started construction, um, you know, we weren't hundred percent sure of all what the requirements were going to be to support a cyclone and to support cyclone operations in the North. And so now that we have the two platforms, we're doing that work necessary to bring the two together, having those long range eyes and ears that dipping sonar and uh, weapons on board uh, that aircraft um, it's it's going to cause us a whole host of work that necessary work that we need to do. Uh, you mentioned the Arctic offshore patrol vessels are not a combatant. You know, it's not it doesn't carry torpedoes, but the helicopter can. Uh, so we need to we need to bring the ship and the uh, the aircraft together here. Now it was designed for a light duty aircraft, uh, the AOPS, and so we're going to need to do some modifications to the ship. But the, that work is uh, is underway, and we're hoping you know in the next number of years. We started with our, uh, our operational limits uh, testing uh, with some uh, testing with a cyclone over the deck and uh, loitering over the deck, seeing how the wind would interact around the hull, mm-hmm. uh, continuing that work regularly. Um, but, you know, it's challenging, uh, it, you know, when, when you talk about uh, requirements, stretch staffs and, and getting this capability inserted, it's a body work that's important to us. We're working on it, but there's a whole, uh, the airframes themselves, the cyclones are being, uh, and the pilots are being pulled to operations overseas. Uh, such a fantastic aircraft uh, when you're talking about uh, tracking and hunting submarines, which are proliferating worldwide, you know, in, in just the growth is off the charts in the underwater world. And uh, having an aircraft of that capacity on the back of our ships is important to us. We recognize it's important and we're working with the central staffs to, to get that introduced to the ships. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I'm sure they can't come uh, soon enough, but certainly needs to to be done right. Um, we talked about the fact of you know having these uh, containers on board the uh, the AOPS, and uh, I know that during the circumnavigation of North America, Harry DeWolf had a towed array that it that it took up. Uh, I believe you you had exercised with something similar at least for sensing equipment for, for the underwater column uh, during Opna Nook. I would love to hear a little bit about that because I think there were two different types of systems you had. Yeah, so the, the main body of work we tried to achieve this year was uh, related to the safe use of sonar in the Arctic. And so, and, you know, it's been very public. It's been in the news uh, stories and that have been proliferated about the use of sonar and the impact on marine mammals, in particular whales. Right. And so the Navy isn't uh, reckless with our use of sonar. We do not want to go out and harm species that are important to Canadians, important to all of us. It's part of the you know marine wildlife. Nobody wants to go out and, and harm whales. And so that takes study and it takes research and it takes work. Uh, and so we've committed to a body work over a number of years now with uh, British Columbia studying the impacts of underwater noise on porcupods. Uh, We've done it off the East Coast here with the, uh, you know, the revision of shipping lanes, um, speed controls put in place for the, to protect the right whale populations. And so this year, what we wanted to do, because every, of course, every whale is different and their, their response to noise in the water is different. 
And so uh, we wanted to check this year. So we worked with Dalhousie University and Defence Research Development Canada. Um, and uh, we wanted to check the impact on the sperm whale populations and the beaked whale uh, were the two target populations that the scientists really want to check first. And so that's the noisemakers that we had. We wanted to start, and obviously you start with very, very low, safe, um, at distance and, and, and see what the impact is. And the way you measure that is the Department of Fisheries and Oceans were actually on board and were prepared to tag the, uh, the uh, sperm whales. So actually drive a boat up alongside with a suction cup uh, on a pole and a, a tag, and you can actually track and see uh, what the impact would be once a noisemaker was started. Again, low power is safe. And so that was one of the bodies of work we want to do is before we even start transmitting and putting noise into the water in defense of North America, continental defense, we want to make sure that we understand what the impact is on the environment around us, which is prudent. So, so we, we committed to doing that body of work. But the other one was, as I said, was the, um, the total rate that Harry DeWolf had last year. We had it again this year. Um, and we're going to continue with that to see the propagation of sound. Um, the Navy's uh, doing work with, uh, with multi-statics, we call it. Um, so uh, using multiple sonar sources to track contact. And so there was a whole host of work done in that, uh, that realm as well. Some of it's classified, uh, of course. Uh, but the majority of the bulk of the work this year and probably next year as well is going to be that safe use of sonar. And so another important fact, you know, operating the North is different as well because, you know, as part of reconciliation, we need to make sure that we are engaging with the Northern communities, Northern Canadians, that they understand what we're doing and, and that we're trying to mitigate the impact of our operations and our experiments and our studies on their way of life and the marine life that they rely on uh, for living. Uh, and so we use something called the Nunavut Impact Review Board uh, for East Coast operations where communities, hunters and trappers and others have a say and they understand and they're engaged and consulted before we actually undertake these activities. Um, I think in the past there was a belief that there's a veil of secrecy, a shroud of secrecy, if you will, over you know, wanting to do any kind of science and not wanting to be open and honest uh, with, with Canadians about it, that's not the case. We now have this mechanism in place, a good mechanism where we openly engage. And of course, there's parts of the research that's classified, but the parts that impact communities, um, you know, not the ones and zeros, but the actual parts that would impact a community um, and that needs to be considered, we're open and honest with that and upfront. And we're making sure, I, I believe, the work that we're doing is going to ensure that we are responsible players in that very delicate ecosystem that is the North. Pristine ecosystem. I mean, just phenomenal to see this summer. Like the uh, the Canada's North is just, it's spectacular. And uh, and we want to be good stewards of that. And we want to make sure that people that are working up there are good stewards for it as well. You know, I, I love that, Captain Gillis, uh, because I think it's so important for those that are listening to appreciate that the Canadian Navy is not just charging around in the waters haphazardly. Um, I've had the good fortune to go on board a number, a number of our Navy ships. And anytime there's sea life around, it's always reported, it's always tracked, and there's always effort made to distance the ships from sea life so they're not disturbed. And I think that's, you know, that is being good stewards of the environment and of sea life. 
And so it's heartening to hear that, that the Navy is doing those things. And I hope more people appreciate that the Navy is. It's also good training for us too, you know, hearing, listening for sonar operators, listening to marine life. Um, I'm sure you've seen the hunt for red October, uh, you know, and, and having that operator on the headset listening and being able to discern, uh, you know, submarine noise from uh, the marine <laughs> marine environment. It's right. a noisy, it is a noisy environment. It's uh, it's challenging with the ice and the, the noise from the ice. Uh, the uh, it's it, it is a challenge, and so that's another good thing up there as well. Passive use of uh, towed arrays that aren't transmitting in the water that are listening and having operators that can differentiate the difference, you know, between you know the crunching ice and a submarine and and a whale. Um, Sounds very easy, but when you have that headset on, it's quite challenging. And so it's providing realistic challenge conditions for our operators that are overseas that are, you know, really busy tracking Russian, Chinese, and other submarines around the world. Uh, this is just another environment where we need to be ready and, and we need to understand what that environment looks and sounds like. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to be up there because uh, it's it, it you know simulation is wonderful and and it's uh, it's it's a valuable tool, but you know there's a this whole other thing to actually be out there doing it in in real life. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, you know, there is no substitute for the real thing. Um, operations around the world are teaching us so many lessons, incredible uh, amount of lessons. As I said I was uh, the captain of a warship. Uh, deployed off of Syria and tracking uh, Russian submarines off of Syria for a number of months. And um, there is no substitute for real world operations and, and being there and being, you know, seeing, observing, collecting intelligence information and sharing that with partners and allies. That is, that is um, really valuable. And so, you know, out of deployments and operations around the world, the Navy and Canadians are getting a number of things out of it. We're engaging with countries around the world. You know, we're doing that regional engagement to part where, our government, senior members of our government, global affairs and, and, and other uh, federal agencies can use the ship as a host in countries around the world, a visible, tangible symbol of Canada around the world with Canadians in uniform that are proud, doing their job every day and doing a great job. We also get, you know, the, the, the benefit of operating with allies. And so, you know, I've heard, you know, with the Arctic operations that, you know, there's, there's a camp that's concerned with other countries operating in Canada's north. And so, you know, from our perspective, one of the goals of Operation Nanook, to, to go back very briefly to that, one of the goals we had is operating with partners and allies. Canada is a NATO country. Uh, NATO isn't Europe. Europe is part of NATO. North America is part of NATO as well. And so much like we go over to Europe and we operate in, you know, the Hebrides or we operate in uh, the North Sea off of Norway or Norwegian fjords or in Danish fjords, um, Baltic, Mediterranean, internal waters at the Black Sea uh, with our partners and allies. We want partners and allies here to understand the challenges of defense in our country. You know, we're a part of the alliance as well. And um, certainly we have NORAD and we have the defense of the homeland and the continent. But as part of NATO, we want to socialize our partners and allies and friends around the world. And so Going around the world and being visible and deploying and working with partners is important. Bringing them here is just as equally important. So Operation Anook provides us the opportunity to do that. And we have here in the East Coast, uh, Cutlass Fury every second year, where we bring partners and allies in uh, to operate. Uh, it was just released in the news today. Uh, Gerald Air Ford, brand new US aircraft carrier, is going to be visiting Halifax this weekend. Oh, fantastic. Uh, 
escorts operating on the coast here with two Canadian patrol frigates uh, and multiple escorts. So bringing allies and partners here is a visible symbol, much like what we do around the world and bring the Navy around the world. And that's, that's hard. And so it's good. Anytime we can bring other countries here and show Canadians, our partners and allies are here and that when we go over the horizon, we're doing the exact same thing on their behalf in other countries. I think if that's a powerful part of the Navy um, that gets missed, you know, when you see those ceremonies and the ship leaving over the horizon and that's it. But there's some good stuff that the ships and the sailors are doing on our behalf in security and collaboration, building alliances, building trust, which takes time with our partners and allies around the world, being there, being committed to regions around the world that are important to the government and the Canadians. The Navy's a great tool for that. Um, it's just we're being asked to go to a lot of... <laughs> A lot of places now. A lot of places need more Canada. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hopefully with with more hulls now uh, in the fleet uh, as part of the AOPS uh, class, that will help facilitate the need to be in different places. Um, the one last thing I really want to ask about the AOPS is that concept of operations of having it as kind of like a mothership. Um, I might be using the wrong terminology in that, but uh, um, but I'd love to kind of hear about the idea behind that, what was exercised and how you see that being utilized going forward. So the idea of having a host ship, and oh, sure. Thank you. a large ship like this one, it opens a lot of doors. And so the reason why I say that is the space. So the space for a command element, a commander of a task group or a mine countermeasures group, for example, just as an example, um, host for uh, platforms and trying to conduct science and technology in areas where big ships can't go, being a host ship, being able to provide food, fuel, and expand the endurance of camps ashore, um, you know, with uh, scientists that are working in uh, remote areas, um, delivering supplies, um, and being able to deploy different payloads off the ship into the water. Um, to, to monitor the water for not just defense, but for collection of scientific data and a whole host of other reasons. And so um, the other concept we proved was the ability to transfer fuel, as I said, from an AOPV, which has a gigantic belly of fuel in it to enable operations in the north. Uh, I was just so impressed coming from a frigate, um, you know, where you're going through hundreds of thousands of liters uh, of fuel to maintain and sustain that fuel speed in those gas turbines um, necessary for frigate warfighting type of operations to the very fuel efficient diesel engines that we have on these ships um, sipping fuel. The North, as I said, I'll go back to it again, it's, it's an enormous space to patrol. And we're not flying around at, you know, 400 or 600 knots like our Air Force counterparts. You know, we're steaming through ice, you know, sometimes at three to five knots, pulling through ice. And pushing it and so being able to sustain operations in the north is important so that was kind of the host ship concept that we proved the extended goose bays operations we didn't have to rely on a uh, an oiler a civilian oiler that was up there to supply communities potentially you know interrupt and that is the last thing as a navy we want to do is to interrupt community resupply it's so important uh, to their way of life and uh, and to their to, to their existence over the harsh winters so we wanted to prove that this is something we could do in our operations to extend our operations and not be a burden on other logistics operations in the North. And so that 
in itself opens a whole host of doors to supporting other kinds of operations around the world. Um, if you can transfer food, fuel, carry large quantities of items and containers, refrigerated containers if you had to, that's a great sustainment tool uh, as well. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, just the capability if you were faced with a humanitarian assistance disaster relief um, scenario. Uh, boy, a lot of capacity there in the ships. Yeah, and we forward deploy, like for our uh, hurricane response, we do forward deploy a number of containers to regions around the world where, you know, we've seen devastating effects, not just here at home. Uh, we have our home equipment as well, but, you know, being able to quickly re-roll a ship, say that's on a Operation Crib in the Caribbean down to pick up a container that's loaded with uh, humanitarian supplies, put it on the back of that ship, then be able to take that and put that container in the landing craft, which then can, can then go into a beach where maybe the jetty was destroyed. That landing craft could take that uh, life-saving equipment and supplies uh, into a beach, land it itself, get it off, and then, you know, uh, go back to the ship for more. Um, and so there is a whole host of things that, you know, as I said, every year we're growing up with these ships, we're learning more and more and more. And one of them is that uh, those those landing craft operations as well, really uh, interesting work and a growth industry, I would say there as well. Yeah, that's super neat. Um, so I guess the flip side of that is, uh, what are some of the challenges or um or hiccups that you've seen uh, with the AOPS thus far? Because it is a new capability. You know, it, as you operate them, you realize that, oh, well, maybe there's, this was an unanticipated deficiency or, or, or problem. Uh, you know, we referenced um, the challenge that, that Harry DeWolf had with its diesel uh, generators, but um, what do you know of the AOPS thus far? Um, what are some of the challenges that, that the class is facing? Because to recognize them, obviously, then you, you work to correct them. I'd say probably the biggest challenge, you know, has to be um, just the introduction to service of a new ship. Hmm. Um, we were in a boom and bust cycle with shipbuilding in Canada. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's been since the 90s that we introduced a ship. I wasn't in the Navy in the 90s. 1999, I joined the Navy. But the frigates and the Kingston class were already introduced to service. And so that corporate knowledge over the last 20 years has left the Navy, you know, through time and retirements and everything else. And so learning that when you get something new and you get a new piece of equipment, there is going to be problems with it. Uh, you know, Tim Choi from the University of Calgary says, uh, says it really well. He talks about it from time to time about if you go back in time and you look at the articles about the Halifax class when they were introduced to service, you know, media, uh, you know, and others uh, were extremely critical of the capability but you know it takes time to work out the kinks this is complicated machinery like this piece of machinery behind me seven thousand tons in a warship they are complicated and so that in itself was a huge challenge um the thing i think we really got right i'll go back to some more challenges in a minute but sure i think the thing we got building these ships first this is a non-combatant it is a eyes and ears type of sensor and platform that can conduct non-combat type of operations. And there's lots of those for the Navy to do around the world. Um, but that is preparing the yard, the shipyard, to build those complex CSC warfighting machines. They're gonna have the pipe fitters and the welders and the, the skills and trades necessary to build more complex machinery. And so I think, you know, out of the National Shipbuilding Strategy, building these first 
kind of learning these hard lessons uh, that we're learning um, with the introduction of them over time, just even the organizational pieces of what organization is responsible for what in the introduction of service, you know, where does the contractor and the builder's responsibilities end? Where does the, the Navy uh, take over to do its operational testing and tactical development of the platform? Where does the assistant or associate deputy minister of materiel and, and that staff making sure that the systems that have been delivered are actually meeting the requirements as we do introduction to service trials. All that stuff is new to us. Uh, and so that was probably the answer to go back to your question. That was probably the biggest challenge is sorting out the introduction of service to Harry DeWolf and making tweaks as Margaret Brook came. And even more, now that we're looking at a coastal transfer of the first platform, how do we do the test and trials crewing of the ship here on the East Coast and hand it around? Something we got really good at with the introduction of service to the Halifax class um, you know, as, as Ottawa came around to the West Coast, HMCS Ottawa, it was a well-oiled machine. Now, of course, there's, there'll be those that may or may not watch this that'll say, you're crazy. It was never a well machine, but it got much better uh, over time. And so I can see it myself that it's getting better over time. And, and knowing that we're committed as a nation to building ships over the next 30 years uh, and beyond, hopefully, to me, capturing the lessons learned and getting it right now, that is the part that we need to work on the hardest so that generations of officers that come behind us and, and sailors that come behind us know what it takes to successfully introduce a new platform to service. Because as I said, this is the next 30 years of the Navy uh, and getting that right uh, is so important. And so introduction to service, absolutely. And the institutional challenges and in getting that right after years of not introducing such a complex piece of machinery to service was a challenge. Um, other challenges um, were operating in the third ocean in ICE. You know, Corey Gleason and Commander Corey Gleason and Commander Michelle Tessie and others, uh, you know, through the um, through the great cooperation and collaboration with the Canadian Coast Guard, started to build a body of knowledge before these ships even arrived. So working with Canadian Coast Guard captains who had years and years and years of experience operating there, but building the capacities of captains and crews of our own to operate in an area where the Navy typically did not operate and could not operate because of the nature of our equipment. Now that we have the new equipment and getting sailors and more sailors up to speed, it's sort of like the old divide that we used to have with the Halifax class and the, uh, and the Iroquois class. It was really two different types of sailors, two different types of missions, you know, a general purpose anti-submarine warfare frigate and an anti-air warfare, two helicopter carrying destroyer, um, different mission sets. And so AOPV has a different mission set, a different way of operating, a smaller crew in a bigger ship, um, took a whole other scale of learning as well. And so those initial crews of Perry DeWolf here, Margaret Brook and others, they're real trailblazers for how are we gonna operate in the North, you know, moving forward. Um, logistics, as we talked about the challenges, um, support. All these things are, are areas where we're learning. We continue to learn. And so I guess that's the most important message is that, yes, there will be problems every time you introduce a new piece of machinery. That is natural. That is our point of view. Mm -hmm. But certainly it's hard, I'm sure, for, for people looking from the outside in and what they see as negative news stories about system X or system Y. But And it's not to sound flippant, but to us in a uniform, this is natural. We are going to work these problems out. We always do. And we will come to a solution where we get to a good spot like the frigates after, you know, a couple of years where 
we worked out those kinks and we figured out how to operate it. And, and, and there's a lot of smart people putting in a lot of good work every day to, to, to push the bounds and to improve the Navy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I'm, I'm keen to hear is, is what you have seen from your international colleagues and how they look at the AOPS as a new class of ship. Uh, because, you know, you've had, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the French, the Americans, etc. Uh, I'm sure they've all visited um, the AOPS ships. Uh, I know that Harry DeWolf visited Norfolk Naval Station, and I believe probably also San Diego Naval Station during its circumnavigation. So uh, various people have had the opportunity to see the ship. I'd love to get your insight of some of the feedback that perhaps you've you've heard. Yeah, it certainly sparked some really interesting conversations. I mean, you know, if you look at a, a Zumwalt uh, class uh, ship and then you look at an AOPV, two totally different missions and mandates, you know, it right. really sparked conversations uh, when you start talking about the different capacities that nations bring to the table. And so for Nunuk, uh, you know, when I was looking at Operation Nunuk this summer and I'm uh, looking to see, you know, what is... Um, country X bringing or country Y bringing to the table. And then when they looked at what the Arctic offshore patrol ship was bringing to the table, just incredible. And, you know, they, they were impressed. They, you know, they came on board and the Arctic is of interest to so many nations right now. And, and, you know, Arctic has many different connotations depending on whose point of view or whose lens you're looking at it. Are you looking at it through a Russian lens? Are you looking at it through a Chinese lens? Are you looking at it through an American or are you looking at it through, you know, other nations that believe they're Arctic nations that want to participate in the Arctic, but don't have a border on the Arctic. And so lots of nations are looking to see what the countries, the Arctic nations are doing. And a lot of countries are looking at Canada, you know, and, and what's this service introduction of service of this new platform? What does it mean for our ability to secure our North? And so when they see it, they see it operating. They see it, uh, you know, watching the uh, the international staff officers watch Margaret Brook uh, pushing through to the to the polar ice cap, and, and that this is a Navy ship doing this. You know, you know, it, 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 it's impressive, and uh, recognizing how long and the platform. We learned so many lessons from our operations in the Persian Gulf after the the 9/11 attacks, boarding operations in the Indian Ocean. Um, you know, just you look at the boarding space on board that ship, it's purpose built based on the lessons we've learned over time. And so, you know, you walk out of a boarding room, you walk right onto a boat, your weapons lockers, everything that's right there. It's all stuff we've learned over time that was built into the design. And when partners and allies come on and they see that, they're like, wow. You know, you, like I, to go back to my point before, it's hard to modify things after construction. Right. But, but, but putting those lessons and having writing down those good ideas for so many years and saying, wouldn't it be nice to have the ship has so many of those. Wouldn't it be nice to have that we've learned over years? Uh, I'm, I'm so heartened to hear that. You know, I, I've, as I, as I mentioned, I've been on board uh, Harry DeWolf and um, you know, I, I, I could see some of the things that you're talking about. So it's nice to see that those lessons learned have been incorporated into the new ship. And I love the potential that that they will bring uh, in the future to to the Royal Canadian Navy. Well, I should say today and into the future because they are operational. Um, yeah, this has been so interesting. And uh, I guess it, just to kind of wrap up this discussion about the AOPS and the Arctic and, and the capabilities of the ship, 
you know, you just spoke to all of these different nations that perhaps have different views on that region. How do you see the Arctic? Do, do you see it as a contested environment? Um, how does Canada look at it? Or I guess the Canadian Navy, because we are there, we have to be there. Uh, I think uh, Prime Minister Harper famously said, you know, use it or lose it kind of a thing. And uh, I happen to agree with that statement. But um, yeah, you know, from a Navy perspective, I'd love to get your insight about the whole region. Yeah, I certainly won't speak on behalf of global affairs. Of of course, of course, yeah. (laughs) My perspective as a naval officer, um, you know, the defense of Canadians and the security of Canadians is our primary mandate. And so we need to be ready. And knowing that the, the Arctic is changing, it's becoming more accessible. That means as a Navy, we need to be ready. We need to be ready to do our part on the waters, under the water, and support our partners in the air and on the land to defend Canadians. And we take that, that is our, that is our raison d'etre. We are here to protect Canadians. And so recognizing that we recognize the importance of these ships. We have got exactly what we've asked for, something that can patrol an enormous area with the sensors and packages that we need with room for growth as technology changes. I mean, what a bad idea would have been to commit eight or 10 years ago to a sensor suite on the ship with 10 years of technological change between now and the build, it, it just makes so much more sense. And it's such, you know, to have that growth after the fact, Right. that's cool. So, um, you know, from to, to, to go back to the geopolitical part, the Arctic is a growing area of interest. We know it around the world, we see it. We see it just by the, the interest in, around the table at the Arctic Council. Um, and uh, that's not to say that we see it as contested or we see it as uh, a potential zone for, for, for war or conflict. But as an armed force, we need to be ready for that. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand how to, the challenging conditions of our own backyard and make sure our allies and partners are ready for that as well. If we need to call them in to support us and support our, our operations in, in our internal waters. And so uh, absolutely uh, as a naval officer and a worker officer, we are closely watching this space. This is a growth area for us. Tactics development to ensure the defense and security of Canadians in that changing environment, rapidly changing environment. It is a challenge for us. Um, I wouldn't say that you know we're uh, we're um, you know uh, we're still working. We're still working that as it changes. The environment gets a vote, uh, and it is changing what the Canadian Arctic looks like in our areas, uh, not just physical areas where we'll be going. But when we do arrive there, what is what is the environment, the air, the water, everything look like around us? And so um, we were working really closely as part of NORAD modernization, um, working with our our, um, our partners in the Army and the Air Force and CANSOF, pushing the balance every year of Operation Inuk throughout the year, um, you know, diving in ice and in water, improving those capabilities. We are continuing, we will continue to push that balance to ensure that we are ready for that main mandate, the defense of uh, security of Canadians. Awesome, awesome. So Captain Gale says we close out, I, I would like to ask you um, for those that are listening that are perhaps interested in a life in the military and specifically the Navy, what would you say to folks that are listening? Because obviously the Navy needs people, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces needs people. Um, you know, you've been in uniform now for over 20 years. So 
what would you say to folks that are that perhaps have this as a potential career interest? Say we need them. We need Canadians. We need young Canadians to join the armed forces uh, for a whole host of reasons. We need them to join so that we can do the things that Canadians need us to do to secure the defense and security, their defense and security. We need the people to go to sea. We need the people in the sky. We need the people on the land. Um, and so that'll be the first reason we need Canadians to help us and help other Canadians with that part of our critical mandate. Um, we also need them to join because we need to be uh, a reflection of a changing Canadian society. And we need young, new, innovative ideas and thinkers to join us. We need fresh ideas coming in and, and we welcome uh, everybody from all elements of Canadian society to come join us. There is a place for you in this armed force. We are working to make it a better place. Um, it is not perfect. I don't think there is a perfect workplace anywhere. Um, and we are doing what we can uh, every day to make this the best workplace that we can make it. But the bottom line is if you join the armed forces, uh, there will be challenges. Um, it is a incredibly rewarding way of life. Um, getting to deploy and wear this uniform with Canada on it. Um, after 24 years of service, it is not old for me. Um, I take great pride in putting on the uniform every day and knowing that I'm going to go out and I'm going to do something that's for the benefit of Canadians um, and for the protection of Canadians and the Canadian way of life and, and, and putting that out around the world uh, to make the world a better spot, those bright lights. And that's what Canadian sailors are. Um, so please, if you're listening and you're thinking about it, please come join us. We have a spot for you. We want you in our ranks um, and, and you will enjoy uh, the experience and you can help us make us a better institution as well. What a great way to end this discussion. Um, Captain Navy Sheldon Gillis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, sir. It, it has been uh, very interesting. Uh, I've learned a lot, and uh, I think it there's a bright future ahead, both for the AOPS and for the Royal Canadian Navy, and challenges ahead, but, but hopefully all good challenges. Hey, Jody, I, I really want to say thank you very much for the opportunity to talk. Like our last discussion that we had, uh, for me, it was, a, it was a great dialogue that we had as well. And the opportunity to get in front of your audience and to tell the Navy story and to tell our part that we play, uh, I just can't thank you enough for the medium to be able to do this as well. And so thank you for everything you're doing to help us tell our story to Canadians as well. Uh, you're, you are most welcome, but certainly the thanks goes to you. Uh, you're serving and you're, you're offering up your time, and I greatly, greatly appreciate that. And I look forward to our next opportunity to chat about another Navy topic of interest as we move forward. Great. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. That, my friends, was Navy Captain Sheldon Gillis, who is Deputy Fleet Commander at Maritime Forces Atlantic. Uh, if you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please reach out to us at GoBoldThePodcast at gmail.com. We wish everybody a great day and hope you join us again on another episode of Go Bold. Thanks, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com.
The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.